I'm so excited about class this morning because I'm a biblical language nerd. I have three and a half years of Greek and I have like four and a half years credits with Hebrew and studied Aramaic and Latin and, and Syriac and some... I'm a biblical language nerd at heart who just happens to have gone to law school and just happens to teach this class. And this class is one for me. So sit back and just wonder at what biblical language nerds find interesting because this may bore you to death, okay? But it's in here and, and it's going to appeal out of a crowd of 300 plus. There have got to be at least three of you who like this stuff with me. We're talking this morning about Paul the Apostle. The Apostle. Now, if I just say to you, Apostle, I just throw that word up there, what picture or what words come to your mind? One of them might be Paul, because I just said Paul the Apostle. Or maybe you're thinking of the 12 Apostles, right? Anybody thinking of the 12 Apostles? Okay, well, how about this? Did you know that in the Mormon religion, there are a quorum of 12 apostles that they have today? Not just in the Mormon religion, but if you go to Islam, Muhammad is considered the last of the Rasuls, the, the apostles. You think, well, that may be Mormonism or that may be Islam. Within Christianity, especially in Pentecostal circles, you can find men and women who claim to that title of being an apostle. Uh, within the Pentecostal tradition, there was even a movie out with Robert Duvall, the apostle. Apostle, what is it? You know, do we have them today? How many were there? Was Paul an apostle? Was he not an apostle? Who cares? Why does it matter? Someone said to me, you know, I don't even know why we're studying Pauline theology or studying Paul. Why don't we just study biblical theology? Those are legitimate questions. It's legitimate to say whether Paul was an apostle or not, why does it matter? It's a legitimate question. So we're going to look at it. It was an important something to Paul, aspect of Paul's writings. It was important enough for Paul to say the following, Romans 1.1, he starts out his letter, Paul called to be an apostle. Not just Romans 1, but 1 Corinthians, he starts 1 Corinthians out, same way, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle. You, you go back through 1 Corinthians a little later on in the letter. He even says to him, aren't I an apostle? He rewrites the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians, first verse, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. It's not just the Romans and the Corinthian letters. Ephesians 1, he starts out, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Timothy, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God. Second Timothy, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Well, well, this was a significant thing to Paul. Fair? Okay, then let's look at it in three aspects. We want to make three points today. First point is we want to become better Bible students. 
That's a polite way of saying this is a biblical language nerd class. Second, we want to become more confident in our study of the Bible. Third, we want to become more grounded in our faith. Those are the three things I want to try and see if we can do in the next 25 minutes. Okay? We're going to start out by becoming better Bible students. My goal here in this class is to somehow manage to teach a class that in some way, shape, form, or fashion appeals to all of you at some point. Now, not all of these classes are interesting to all of you. It's real interesting as I teach them. Different sets of people will come up to me after class and say, that one I really liked. Of course, when you all say that and I don't see you again for six months, I know that we hit a dry spell, okay? But different people come up because different people like different things. And so this is a, a, a class that, that hopefully should make all of us better Bible students if we look at it. Now, so here's how we're starting it out. To be better Bible students, I want us to have the Bible. You all recognize the Bible. Right? We all have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, come tell me. We'll get you one. Maybe some of the younger people in here don't have a good Bible they can write in. Anybody that doesn't have a good Bible you can write in and take notes in, please come see me after class. We'll fix that. Okay? You got a Bible. Now, this is a math book. Algebra 1. Anybody ever study math? A few of you? Okay. Put on your math brains and let's remember something. Because I worry that somehow we've taken a principle that applies in algebra and flipped it over to the way we study the Bible. And it's not a good flip. Okay? I'm calling this, watch out for the transitive theory of Bible interpretation. Remember the transitive theory of mathematics? It goes something like this. If A equals B, if B equals C, then we know that A equals C. That's right. Okay, we can't use that in the Bible without being very, very careful. We can't just take a verse from here and a verse from there and a verse from here and remeld them back together into our own puzzle. We always need to zealously read in context and study in context. And it's not only true for verses. And the, the best example is you can't take Judas went and hung himself, tie it to go thou and do likewise, and then tie it to what thou doest, doest quickly. Okay, that's not good, scholastic, serious, you know, with this, the, the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. Be careful how you play with swords. They can cut you if you don't use them right. Okay? So, how does the transitive theory of Bible interpretation work? Well, it's something like this. Jesus says in Matthew, whoever says, you fool will be liable to the fires of hell. Right? It's like Matthew 7. Paul says, you fool, in Romans, 1 Corinthians, 
2 Corinthians, he calls them fools. He calls himself a fool. Fool for Christ. Well, the transitive theory of Bible interpretation would say, therefore, Paul is going to hell. Jesus said, don't say fool. Paul said fool. Paul's going to hell. Okay. That's obviously a silly example because we know that's not right. But that's why I'm using it. I want to make it real clear. You can't just take a word from one section of the Bible and then find another place that uses that same word and incorporate the two verses together. There needs to be some study. It may be okay to do that, but it may not be okay to do that. We need to study to make that decision. Fair enough? So how do scholars decide, for example, what a word means? If we were using the fool passage, we'd need to look and see what Jesus was using for fool. Raka is the Aramaic word he was using. And, and what does it mean? And what's he trying to discover? And, and, and how do scholars go about figuring out what that word means anyway? Aloha. What does that mean? Well, half of you are saying goodbye and half of you hello. Which is it? It's both. So I guess if I say aloha to you, you need to put it into context to know if I'm saying hey or bye. Right? Okay. Greek is the same way. The translators have got to take these Greek words and they've got to figure out how to make it into English that makes sense to English readers. Most good translations are done by committees, not individuals. So that the committees can sit down and hash it out. And the translation hopefully doesn't reflect just the ideas of one person. So how do scholars do that? We're looking at the word apostle this morning. How would we go about trying to decide what apostle means in the Greek? We get a Greek New Testament. One word in one place in the Greek is not always translated or understood the same way in another. For example... Take that word, apostolos. That's the word in the Greek. You see it's an A. Y'all recognize the pi is the second letter. That's the Greek P. A-P-O. That O with the little wing nut on it is an S. So that's A-P-O-S-T-O. And that's an L if you... Um, some of you majored in Greek in the sense of sororities and fraternities, so maybe that'll help you. A-P-O-S-T-O-L and then O, and then that's another S at the end. Greek, you know, I told you the S is the circle with the, the kind of the wing on it. If the S is at the end of the word, they wrote it a little bit more like our S. So that's the same thing. It's just uh, an S at the end of the word. That's apostolos. Say apostolos. Apostolos. Okay. Now, scholars want to know. That's the Greek word. It means, apostolos, one sent out. How do we decide what it means in a context? Well, I can tell you that we get some English words from it. Care to guess? Postal. Post office. Parcel post. To post a letter is to send one out. So we get, but, but, eh, that's not a good way to figure out what the Greek word means. 
because ours came from Middle French, and Middle French came, you know, it's just taken a long time to get here. You can't reconstruct the Greek based on what we know it sort of sounds like to us today. So scholars will go to a number of different places. Let me throw out three places that scholars would examine that we're going to look at briefly for this word apostolos. And we've got to move. I've got 18 minutes. Okay. Source number one, other Greek writings. I have here, I brought a copy of Herodotus. Herodotus lived in the 400s B.C. Okay. So 400 plus years, over 400 years before Paul. Herodotus writes... Oh, <laughs> Herodotus was the first real historian that we know of. He wrote histories, and I brought one of his histories, and I had Mike's pencil. Let's see what we can do here. Herodotus, look at this history. In this history, Herodotus writes, Ho, men, day. Ooh, recognize that word? Look at that word. Apostolos. You got it? See? A-P-O-S with the wing nut, T-O-L-O, final S, apostolos. And if you were translating this for your Greek class, you would look at it in the sentence, and you would say, on the other hand, the messenger, or the one sent out, to, uh, was sent to uh, Miletos before he was sent. So we can go back and we can see in places that are other writings, how the word is used. Apostolos, apostle, was used as someone who's sent out. Um, it's also used in this sense uh, uh, as uh, not just someone sent out. Oh, I've skipped. Okay, look, we're going to look at the Greek sources. We're going to look at the Greek Old Testament. And then we're going to look at the Greek New Testament. Now, back to the Greek sources. I jumped ahead. It can also mean a naval expedition. That's what they'd use for naval expeditions that were sent out. Ambassadors or envoys or messengers. That's the way we see the word used. It's not used a ton prior to biblical times. But the times we do see it used, it's used that, that way. Now, in addition to scholars wanting to see how it's used outside the biblical context, scholars will also look at sources like the Jewish Old Testament that was translated into Greek a couple of hundred years before Christ. That's called the Septuagint. Okay? It's Latin here, Septuaginta. But it's the same thing. It's the Septuagint. The Septuagint is Jews translating their Jewish scripture into Greek. So we're going to see how the Greeks use It's especially important to scholars who are doing Bible work because Paul and others used the Septuagint. We can see some of Paul's Old Testament quotations or word for word out of the Septuagint. And it makes sense since Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles and ministering to the Gentiles and the Greeks. And many Hebrews were speaking Greek. That's why the Jews had to translate Scripture into Greek to start with. Okay? You all with me so far? So scholars will look in the entire Old Testament. Postolos, and I brought a Septuagint here, but I'm not going to take the time to put it up. Um, might as well. All right. I mean, so we're late to Stephen's house for lunch. It's not like he's cooking. <laughs> Apostolos. Recognize it there? 
A-P-O-S with a tail, T-O-L-O, final S. It's in 2 Kings, although in the Septuagint it's called 3 Kings. Whoops, where is it? Regnorum 3. Because the Septuagint calls 1 and 2 Samuel as kings. 1 and 2 Samuel is 1 and 2 Kings. And so what we call 1 and 2 Kings is 2nd or 3rd and 4th Kings. Anyway, I'm digressing. <laughs> and I don't have time to digress, but I told you this is a nerd lesson. Okay, <laughs> apostolos. In 1 Kings 14, 6, if we translated it, it would say, but when Ahijah heard the sound of her feet as she came in at the door, he said, come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be someone else? For I am charged, is the way it's translated in the English standard version. I am charged, but it's apostolos. I'm an apostle. I am charged with unbearable news for you. Third place we go, the actual Greek New Testament. Apostolos is used in the Greek New Testament over 80 times. Sometimes, though, you'd never know it reading your English because they don't translate it apostle. See, that word has so many different meanings. Jesus chooses 12 disciples. They are called apostles. They get it as a, an office. They, they get that title. They get the title because they're eyewitnesses. When Judas Iscariot is uh, gone, there's a replacement of Matthias. And the apostles say for uh, Matthias to become one of the twelve, we have to replace Judas with someone who was an eyewitness and who walked with us from the time of John the Baptist and the baptism of Jesus on and has seen the resurrected Christ. Eyewitnesses. If you saw my cousin Vinny. Eyewitnesses. That's, that's, that's what's necessary to be one of the twelve. Okay? Not only that, but apostolos is used in the New Testament as a representative or an envoy. Paul uses it that way. Titus is my partner and fellow worker. Our brothers are representatives is how it reads in your Bibles. But it's the Greek word apostolos to the churches. So we've got usages of this in a sense of a missionary. Someone who's an envoy, an ambassador, someone who's called. Okay? Um, Jesus is called an apostle in Hebrews 3.1. Jesus, the apostle and high priest of God, it says. Well, he's not one of the twelve. But he's clearly a messenger, an envoy, a representative of God Almighty. Alright? You with me? So now, with that as background, let's become more confident in our study briefly. We're going to zip through a couple of these slides so we can go. Um, what kind of an apostle was Paul? Was he simply a missionary? Was he simply an envoy or a representative? I had someone tell me once, ah... I don't read that Paul stuff. I don't think he was that great a guy anyway. I pretty much stick to the red letters of Jesus in the Gospels. I want to know what God says, not Paul. I think he was a bit chauvinistic anyway, which actually is the opposite of what he was. But that's a later class. Paul was an apostle like the chosen twelve. 
Paul doesn't call himself an apostle in the sense of a missionary. It's very different. Consider Peter in 2 Peter writes that his dear brother Paul has written scripture. The writings of Paul are the oracles of God. They're the words of God. They're red letter edition. They're, they're study proof. Paul was an eyewitness to the resurrected Christ. Not only does Paul make that clear in 1 Corinthians 15 and other passages, but Luke makes it clear after his extensive research when he writes the history of the church and the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, Paul doesn't boast of it, but he plainly says it. He'll talk about going to the Twelve and seeing the other apostles in Jerusalem. Paul says, don't I have a right to take a wife just like the other apostles? Paul never boasts of it, but Paul plainly says it. It's an interesting concept. If you read Matthew and you read Luke, it's clear Jesus says that the 12 apostles are set for 12 thrones to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. Paul never claims to be one of those 12. Paul claims to be the apostle for the Gentiles. See the difference? So Paul's not one of the twelve. It's not that one of the twelve died and Paul took their place. Those twelve are the apostles for the twelve tribes of Israel, if you will, to judge the twelve tribes. Paul's the apostle for the Gentiles in one way of looking at it. So with that, let's become a bit more grounded in our faith. Let me tell you why. And these are our points for home. But I want to spend a little time with them. <clears throat> There's a chain here. God exists and seeks to reveal himself and communicate his truth to us. So John words it this way. The word of God, the logos of God. The word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt there is the Greek word for pitched a tent or tabernacled. The tabernacle in the Old Testament is where God's presence was with his people. John says Jesus came and tabernacled. He became the presence of God among us. Jesus very much is an apostle of God in the sense that he is a representative and an envoy. He has all the authority of God. He is God. And what Jesus, you know, show us the Father. The, his followers cried to Jesus. Jesus' response was, you've seen me. You've seen the Father. So we have Jesus, a very real apostle, a very real envoy of the Father. When Jesus speaks, he spoke for God. Now, where's the next link in the chain? Jesus says, I've got you as my eyewitnesses. Jesus made it a point to appear to all the apostles in the flesh. Thomas, he doubts, needs to touch. Because God wanted beyond any doubt, Jesus wanted beyond any doubt, all of those eyewitnesses to be able to give their lives out of a firm conviction that it wasn't an apparition, that it wasn't a dream, that it wasn't a wish, that it wasn't just some hope. 
But there was confidence that Jesus Christ himself, who they knew had died on that cross, who they knew had been wrapped up, who they knew had been in the tomb long enough to suffer decay. Jesus Christ resurrected. Walked, talked, ate, visit, was touchable. Wanted them so convicted that they would literally suffer the greatest torments and the greatest torture that their adversaries could conceive of without wavering, without defaulting. It's not the kind of thing where, gee, out of twelve, three of them kept the faith. For the rest of their lives, till John's 95 years old, they never, not one time, lost their faith and direction. They staked everything they had upon their confidence as eyewitnesses that Jesus Christ was resurrected in the flesh. These are the apostles that are God's messengers and envoys. Jesus said, blessed are you, you see and you believe. But blessed even more are those who believe without seeing. That's us. Jesus pronounced a blessing on us. We... Don't have our faith simply on a resurrected Jesus, period. But we have it based upon the testimony of eyewitnesses to that. If I tell you I believe because I have this inner conviction of the Spirit, that's useful. But I can introduce you to people of totally different faiths. And I'm not talking other denominations. I mean totally different concepts of divinity, who will tell you they have an inner conviction that they're right. But we have accounts of eyewitnesses that are credible and believable that gave their lives for this. If you doubt any of the chain of eyewitnesses, go back and read the church history lessons. Because we've walked through them century by century. So we have the church and we're based and built upon the eyewitness credible testimony of the apostles, what they taught. We are considered a church who, who understands and lives and breathes because of how God communicated through Jesus, who taught through the apostles, who confirmed with miracles and signs, who wrote for us. Matthew, an apostle. Mark, the writer for Peter, an apostle. Luke, the writer for all of the other ones put together as he researched it, scrupulously. John, an apostle. Acts written by Luke. Romans, by the apostle Paul. First and Second Corinthians, by the apostle Paul. Galatians, by the apostle Paul. Ephesians, by the apostle Paul. Philippians, by the apostle Paul. Timothy's, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James, the Peters, the Johns, and then Revelation. Next point. God's Word, Psalm 119 tells us, is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. So, I challenge you. Let's be serious Bible students. Let's dig deeper. 
Let's go beyond merely knowing the stories. Let's see what these people believed so fervently that they would write and God would secure for the ages our holy scriptures. Toward that end, your assignment for next week. If you don't have one of these books, grab one. But next week, we will start the missionary journeys of Paul. And I'd urge you to try and read, if you can, pages 160 to 187. That's the chapter that deals with the church extension in Cyprus and Asia Minor and the Gentile problem. Look at it, please. Final point for home. Actually, put in two. Our church is built on the firm authority of eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus. My faith is not built on what my mom told me, who's here on the second row, that her mom, who's here on the second row, told her, that her mom, my grandmother Davis, told her, that she learned, that she learned. No, we go back and we do it off what the apostles wrote. That's what it's built on. And Paul knew that. And so we can go right to Brother Paul, who tells us that if Christ has not been raised, then we are, of all people, most to be pitied. That he would have done with his life and thrown away all the promise and money and power and prestige he had to be a dishrag kicked around Asia Minor and ultimately killed for his faith. If he had not really seen the resurrected Christ, then he'd have to be so nutty, I don't know how he'd have written anything coherent. But if, in fact, he says, Christ has been raised from the dead, which is true. He doesn't say if, in fact. He says, but, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. So all in Christ be made alive. We all have eternal life through Jesus. That's why this isn't a meeting of the Kiwanis Club. That's why we have someone to worship and someone to fall on. Would you pray with me? Lord, we lift up each other and we lift up our community for you. I pray that your real presence will not only captivate our hearts and our spirits, but will invade every reach of our mind. That we can know with confidence you in whom we trust on whom we're willing to change all aspects of our lives. Lord, without you, there is no joy and there is no life. May we all come to you and bring our community and loved ones with us. Through Jesus, our Savior, the resurrected Lord, we pray. Amen.